0: This evening I'd like to talk about the ecology of compassion. And when I say the ecology, I mean the interrelationship between our inner world and outer world as it relates to compassion. It's said that after the Buddha's enlightenment under the great Bodhi tree in India 2,600 years ago, when he profoundly opened to and understood and realize the liberating knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. And I'm going to state those Noble Truths now. Steve's going to give a fuller talk on the Four Noble Truths. But they are, the first truth is the truth of suffering, or you might say the truth of the sense of vulnerability as human beings in our lives. The second truth is the cause of suffering. The third truth is there is a possibility of the end of suffering, to realize the end of suffering. And the fourth truth is how to develop the path of practice that leads to the end, that leads to what is called the advancement of the holy life, to the ceasing, the stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment or purification. So it's said that even with this rare and precious understanding, the Buddha was reluctant to offer it as teachings to those around him. Because listeners without direct experience would be stuck in theoretical knowledge, theoretical conceptualization. But people really needed to practice, not just to understand cognitively, and hear the teachings, for example, and simply agree, but actually to practice and realize for oneself. During that time, when the Buddha was uh, reluctant to offer the teachings, it said that a celestial being reminded him that there are beings in the world with but little dust in their eyes. And beings in the world, in other words, beings in the world who are able to practice, who are able to see uh, deeply how things are. And so with that reminder, what happened, it said, that compassion arose in the Buddha's heart. And this compassion was a strong and natural inclination for the Buddha. And from that compassion, he decided to share this liberating knowledge so these precious teachings we're all benefiting from today is uh, it's like the, the river of compassion that has flowed onto us. This great energy of compassion that we live in, in this world cycle that this particular Buddha uh, imparted the teachings in. So that is the current, the force we're riding on in this world this great compassion that all these teachings were offered to us upon. It's also said that compassion, and we can experience it for ourselves, is one of the most beautiful feelings a human being can experience in one's life. It's when our genuine caring can connect and open to hardships within us hardships around us, with individuals around us, with peoples, groups of people around us, with all kinds of beings here, with the earth itself. We can open to, those, to that vulnerability <coughs> that we're all living in and faced with and experience. We're able to connect and open to those deep inner wounds that we experience here in this silence and this quiet we have the privilege of open to the of opening to those wounds in our busy lives we don't have that we're so busy paying attention to our responsibilities because we're good human beings but we're so busy and i i speak from experience there i really treasure that opportunities I have to do something like this. So with compassion, what happens is that instead of closing down to what's difficult, to what's hard, to the vulnerability that we face in the world and within ourselves, instead of closing down or turning away or having so many opportunities to just distract ourselves When it becomes unpleasant in this world, we can easily just distract ourselves with something else. Our devices are so nearby to just read the news of some other country or um, go on a YouTube or something to enjoy a moment of enjoyment. Nothing wrong with that. But just when we always distract ourselves away from opening to the hardships inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves, we have no training. We have no opportunities that we take to see, to feel, to experience what's really going on deep in our hearts. So distracting ourselves, avoiding, or even sometimes striking out because it's too hard to face when we feel something difficult sometimes it's just harder to get mad at it or or to um, I have a, a dear friend who who likes to hit something not a person but um, and she's open about that I mean she's even a nun now and she's just, she used to just kind of kick something or hit something and it would hurt her but it was kind of like a way of distracting herself from the inner pain so we see a lot of that in this world you know with all the ways that we can distract ourselves with um, (coughs) with ingesting things that bring us to um, another place chemical stuff and uh, taking things that make us kind of close down to life so this beautiful feeling that we can have becomes even more beautiful when we can have this unconditional care for the vulnerability of our lives this unconditional metta which turns into compassion for ourselves when we can actually have the space and the time when Everything can be directed there when we can have this kind of a space that's always encouraging us that we can open to that, we can go there. We can actually have the privilege, the opportunity to feel something that we don't usually feel in life. Or when we do, it just happens so fast and we look for something else to do. We get busy with helping others so we can really learn, we need to learn how to, um, how to nourish this unconditional care for the vulnerability of our own lives, our own hearts. It's said that this ability of compassion where we can turn towards suffering in ourselves and others is the most powerful ally supporting mindful awareness. Of all the allies we have, of all the beautiful qualities of mind that are available to our training in the Dharma and in other trainings too, that uh, compassion, it said, is the most powerful. It's the most like awareness in a way. Because when awareness uh, is really feeling spacious, neutral, open, And it isn't being defiled by attachment or aversion or delusion. It can open to suffering very easily. But when compassion is present, it provides nourishment for that opening. It provides strength for that opening. So tomorrow when we start to open again and to practice metta with a a person we're having difficulty with, going to learn a little more compassion, um, the, the words that might go with a compassion phrase tomorrow, because it's important that we understand that sometimes we're opening with metta to something, but we realize that it's really compassion. And sometimes we can actually intentionally then uh, use compassion to open to a person, a predicament, a uh, place, of um, where we need more understanding in our outer life, in our inner life. So this compassion feeling is uh, subjectively as a a sense of, a feeling of grace. I know that's kind of like a conceptual word, but some of you may know that. You know, when you can't describe the feeling that came over you, when you were just able to be with something, even be with something beautiful, happy, also to be with something that's difficult and stay completely open to it. This is a sense of grace that comes upon us and it's very difficult to describe. It's a combination of that and gentleness that... um, I know even this afternoon when I was practicing metta and I was tuning in to a particular person, I just um, had this feeling of extreme gentleness. And it, it was actually very, very pleasant. But it was a little bit, you know, if we hadn't experienced that before, it would be like, it could feel like weakness. <laughs> but it was a feel like really very deep softening of my heart. And it was very restful for me in those moments. Of course it's impermanent, it went away, but it was a feeling of, oh, I never realized that that person was so important to me in my life. You know, just that deep connection of metta. And I tuned into how much I, I had a difficulty with that person, but it just kind of dissolved in that moment. So it's actually a strength, too, an inner strength. When we have compassion, we need to have courage because it takes a lot of inner strength, a lot of courage to open to what we're not used to opening to, opening to those default settings that we have, those parts of ourselves that we don't even want to talk about. I mean, now... um, we can more easily sometimes talk about the shame we feel, about this or that, regrets that we've had in life. And we can open to those tender places inside that are really vulnerable. Remembering emotional crises that we've been in or that we are still in or bringing up or it just comes up things that we've had in the past that we haven't clearly faced yet because it's so hard you know we remember things and how some of you have mentioned this afternoon times you've been hurt and then that comes up again for you and it's not easy you know but actually you might have felt during this time that with metta which might have turned to compassion in that moment we can actually really um, embody it we can feel close to it and not shy away, not push it away, not look for something else to cover it up in that moment. The inner storms, the personal tsunamis of our life, we all have them. We appear not uh, immune from that. no. But bit by bit, we take them as um, opportunities to grow more, to grow bigger in our hearts, to have more compassion, more equanimity, more spaciousness, to include all of what this human life has for us, karmically unfolding. In an old journal, um, I found where I was going through a feeling of being really incomplete, trying to face a broken heart, you know, losses, having to leave um, my country of origin because of difficulties there, and leaving being a single parent. It was very, very confusing, and I didn't know what was my life all about anyway, what was I supposed to be doing anyway opening to a lot of losses, which I decided on. I decided to leave. It was my decision. And the losses were a decision that I made to lose. A home there, uh, a family that I had there. So a lot of vulnerability. um, And connected to that in an old journal, I found a passage where I had written about coming across this quiet desperation that I had, that when I looked at this quiet desperation, it didn't have so much to do with those particular conditions of my life, you know, that I left that life being in my 20s with, you know, responsibilities now, and it was like I was really looking for the meaning of life. That kind of dukkha was um, dukkha without an object. I call it. It didn't. I couldn't relate it to anything. But it was something much deeper than that. I was looking to understand the meaning of my life. It was really um, that that kind of personal dukkha led me to the dark, dharma, really. And I had this. Um, spiritual urgency to understand what, what is this my life, this life, a life, all about anyway. So Manindra was around uh, at that time, a few years later, could have been maybe five years later, and so I looked at that part of my journal and I said, oh, I had this quiet desperation, I was talking to him about it, and I was wondering, what's the meaning of my life anyway? And um, I wanted to know that more than anything. Of course, I wanted to raise my children well and be able to provide for us and all of that. That was kind of survival-oriented, but more spiritually-oriented, which I think all of us have here, as I mentioned in my first talk about faith. All of us have this kind of spiritual urgency, much more than just to be calm or just to be free from our current worries in life. But to find out more deeply, what what is this all about? So I asked that of Manindraji, who was around, what is the reason for my being born as a human being? That's how I entered it in the journal, and how I asked him. And very directly, without hesitation, he said, the meaning of your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. It was very direct and really simple. So to use, and to use, he continued to say, use those qualities in life, not just for myself, but to help others along the way. And he was an embodiment of that for me. So this quality of compassion is an equally important part of what we call in the Dharma the two great wings of the Dharma. And these two wings are compassion and wisdom. This is what we're developing here. We first develop metta, which can turn into compassion. We develop that side of our hearts and minds. And we're um, sharing with you uh, understandings of wisdom so that you can take that in, see whether anything is parallel to what you're experiencing, and integrate that integrate that understanding, that knowledge that might be coming forth. It's said that in the Dharma, in order to progress, so to say, in the Dharma, you really have to hear the Dharma. And I understand the reason why, is because when we are hearing the Dharma, sometimes we hear things that we haven't quite fully embodied yet, but we've got a toehold in the door. or we have maybe even greater experience of what we hear. And then we learn that that is something that is important to open to. And sometimes we feel that we're going backwards, but when we hear the Dharma, we learn that that is forward leading, what we are experiencing. And uh, that's a very important experience, even if it's difficult to open to. (coughs) And so when we hear the Dharma, these things about how compassion, both compassion and wisdom are important, then those of us who are geared more towards wisdom, towards understanding maybe even cognitively, theoretically the Dharma, we understand it's really important to, to do this compassion, this metta bit too. So we give it a try, we, we take steps in that direction. And the opposite is true also. Sometimes we're just com- more open, heart-oriented, compassion-oriented, and when we lean more towards understanding cognitively, theoretically, it starts to fit into our real, our actually our own experience. And we start becoming more fully embodying the dharma, So each one strengthens and serves one another to become more balanced so that the the strong, uh, great bird of the Dharma can really fly in liberation. So I'd like to read some words of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, about this. Now a few words on the combination of wisdom and compassion. In Tibetan Buddhism, these are considered the two most important aspects of practice. Just like a bird needs two wings to fly, a very compassionate person without wisdom is only a likable fool. (laughs) And a person with wisdom and no compassion is like a lonely hermit in an ivory tower. Both reinforce each other once we realize how interrelated they both are, and we all are. It is hard not to feel some level of compassion. And once we feel compassionate to others, we realize our deep interrelatedness. So the Dhamma, sometimes you'll hear us say that, that's kind of a, an early Buddhist way of saying Dharma. The Dhamma means the truth of how it is the truth of reality. This is what we're opening to understand more deeply and clearly here. And what we come into understanding, and we'll talk about this more um, in retreat, is the universal truths of seeing everything, experiencing everything as impermanent. And really seeing deeply enough, with the help of that impermanence, to see that nothing is solid even what we call this sense of self this mind body continuum it starts to the practice starts to take up moment by moment facets of what we call body facets of what we call mind and when we can stay with things long enough we see how ephemeral everything is how it, how it can just disappear and and another moment reappear out of nowhere, out of conditions, but we just see the appearance, the changing, and the disappearance of every bit of reality. And so we begin to understand more and more deeply through that impermanence that can't hold on to anything. It's not solid, really. And we We come to interject that understanding more and more deeply in our hearts and become more and more in alignment with the truth the truth of how things are and there's much more to that and we'll, we'll fill those out but that's for its own Dharma talk so in these rare conditions of more quiet and more stillness in the outer environment and this relative solitude and lessened distraction that we have the inner environment quiets down. So this is what we are seeking in our practice here, seeking with faith, seeking as not a wanting, but as a wisdom that turns to what is beneficial. So with these various meditational skill sets we learn in a retreat such as this, our hearts and minds can become at times like a very still forest pool. And we're able to witness what's going on beneath the surface of things. When that outer layer of busyness becomes less ruffled and we see the inner layers. So when you talk about or you see and you express to us and to yourselves what you've experienced below the surface of that ruffled busyness of life, this is really important uh, data that we're receiving. This is really important information. Even though it's really difficult to face, we need to face it because it's part of the reality of life that we don't know we're constantly um, covering up somehow, ignoring or um, covering up with delusion, pushing away with aversion running away towards finding something more pleasant. So here we're, we're encouraged, just stay with it. Just stay with it. Maybe we can see more deeply. Of course there are lots of beautiful experiences, but also we open to the fact of vulnerability, even with those beautiful experiences. We see how vulnerable they are. They don't last. And so we begin to notice the dukkha nature of life. Of course there's beauty, of course there's joyful moments, and we can enjoy them while they last. The Buddha never said, don't enjoy them. (laughs) It's, It's more like whenever he talked about joy and be careful about it, it's not to have attachment to it, that's all. Because when you have attachment to it, we suffer. Why? Because it doesn't last. But if we're in alignment with how things are, when joy comes, we can completely open to that joy, be with it, and know it when it comes, when it changes, and when it passes away. No problem. So, in the process here, we become, we are becoming more deeply aware of the fact that conditions at every level are constantly in flux, and they're all one condition connected to other conditions that make other conditions come about it's all interconnected of course we see this in the situations of the world around us economically, politically, environmentally, socially each one affecting one another we need to have compassion for that too compassion for the outer world and how that's happening Compassion for the injustice and the unrest around racism, sexism, ageism, gender bias of all kinds, and much, much more. The fact that it's very hard to acknowledge and face all of that is a truth also. It's really hard, though we're trying our best. So the elements of earth, air, fire and water endlessly interacting with one another every place, everything we turn to the leaves rustling on the trees the constant changes around us in the sky the darkness turning to light gently fading into darkness again and back to light it's constantly, constantly changing so the vulnerability of the environment around us In the inner environment, we're constantly seeing that. When we turn your attention to, like, can you turn your attention to one experience in the body and just be with it, just be with that pain. You can make all the justification and the reasoning for why it's happening and make the changes in your body so that it won't be so bothersome, but the pain's still going to come. What, I mean, we can examine that, what is pain really? Pain is a sensation in the body connected with some experience in the mind of fear or aversion or attachment How we think it should be and the concept of pain arises. But when we're just staying with that pain and without the feeling of aversion or attachment to how it would be and when there's just complete equanimity it's just sensation arising and passing away. It can happen that way. And we we ask you to... That's why we ask you to just turn to it and be with it. So the aging process and the bigger experience, sickness, part of the vulnerability of life. But here we begin to notice the ever-deepening habit patterns that we have in relationship to all of that. So when we're having experiences the body, experiences the mind, where we ask you, what is the deeper relationship to that? Can you notice in the mind there's some fear or aversion or attachment? And be with that and understand that. What do we understand? Understand experientially that it's all changing, even that moment of aversion. And when we understand that level of impermanence, we start to understand levels of the not self-characteristic there. There's nothing really solid there. What, we start to ask ourselves, what is the self anyway, if we see everything kind of coming and going? So start to deepen into life more like this. And this beautiful quality of compassion is more deeply embodied because we can open to all the four noble truths. And the first one is the truth of suffering. We can't open to all of the four noble truths unless we have this compassion to open to the first one. So compassion is an extremely important quality on this path of practice Because if we didn't have compassion for what's happening moment to moment, we wouldn't be able to open to the First Noble Truth. So the Buddha stated, uh, he started out with the statement of reality that we're all faced with as human beings. The First Noble Truth is Dukkha Satcha, which means there is the truth of suffering. This is where we begin on this path, to actually open to that? Not with a grim, morose understanding, but with an understanding that it's part of life. Can we really, can we just open to that part of life? Samsara is this kind of running away from that, over and over again, running away from that reality, with greed, hatred, and delusion. So when the Dharma came to my life, I heard this first noble truth and what I realized is that it met me where I was at. It gave me permission to accept myself as being human and not like I had to attain some kind of angelic quality in order to um, be on a certain path. But it really said, being human is opening to suffering. That gave me permission to accept myself and not be in denial that somehow I was wrong or my life is wrong because I wasn't in some place that was holy, so to say. The Buddha was a realist and not a pessimist. Was it negative by saying this? The Buddha's first noble truth was about the truth. You know, facing realistically how things are. And he taught that we needed to open to this with tenderness and the care of compassion because anything else would take us further away from it. So I'd like to read something uh, from Khalil Gibran here. It's a very beautiful... Um, speaking about opening to what's difficult and how we think that we have to open to bliss or something, you know, beautiful, and that's what it's all about. But he says something the opposite here, which I think is really important. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as a stone of the fruit must break open, that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. But equally so. That last part is my words. Equally wondrous opening to the pain. So we start with the basic goodness of metta, that unconditional kindness, and then we learn to turn it towards compassion. And that's why these practices have been given to us, so that we can learn to open to all of life, both the joys and the sorrows of life. It's called the quivering of the heart that opens to suffering, because when the heart quivers, it gives us a signal. How I translate that is because it gives us a signal that there's energy here, there's aliveness here to open to see things as they are. So it might be a quivering because, ooh, can I do this? But it's a quivering that also says, you can do this. You can open to what's difficult. I love this um, saying by Agnes Al. uh, She's a Buddhist Asian teacher and she wrote this in the Shambhala Sun. I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. Unfiltered means not seeing through the lens of attachment, aversion, or delusion, but really just seeing clearly with that clear awareness, that bare awareness, that might have uh, compassion by its side as its strength. So what she's meaning is to let go of all the habits and belief systems that keep us in bondage, and in prison in our hearts so we can't see beyond those those cells those jail cells we learn to face what has gone on in this manner of being previously unchecked that unconscious awareness that has had a great that has been a great barrier to seeing things clearly in our lives So when we can see things with simple awareness, aided by compassion sometimes, we open to parts of ourselves that we're not used to seeing, feelings and states of mind that we haven't acknowledged because they've been hard to bear. I know that also. All of us here, including all of us offering teachings, know that. We've all had to go through this in order to be, um, be able to embody the Dharma in the way that we have to, up to this point at least. So opening to really the underpinnings of our personality, which is so hard to open to, we see facets of ourselves that we don't like. And I have a lot of cringing moments. In my life, like, oh, why did I say this? Why didn't I do that? Why I regret doing this, you know, and just cringing moments that hit me like darts that I have to handle. They're getting less as I go along, but they're still painful, these underpinnings of the personality. I mentioned to one of the groups uh, the quote by Lily Tomlin. Um, great comedian and kind of philosopher, a hidden philosopher on the side. She said self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. <laughs> I'm into this and that. Yeah. That doesn't look so good. Also just came across this other one uh, recently. Reality is a major cause of stress. <laughs> and the second sentences just as funny in a way, or true also. I try to avoid it as much as I can. (laughs) So true. So all of these things, you know, there's uh, that kind of grid that we work from, those old belief systems. I call them sometimes, you know, this voice comes, Kamala, you can't do that. And I call those empty echoes. That's what that was in the cave of my heart mind that used to say that before. It's an old belief. It doesn't really have any grip right now. You know, so I can see that it comes and goes like an echo. But there are some echoes that, that have some gripping power. Um, watching those more closely. Unworthiness, judging myself, judging others, a prejudice, you know, I'm a person of color. I know prejudice, too. You know, I I was born with ways that I could see certain facets of life as not being uh, what I like or what I think should be in a certain way or how I feel about it as prejudice. And therefore, because I know it, when I see it in others come my way I know how hurtful that is because I feel it in myself. So of course there are beautiful qualities too. They're much easier to open to but sometimes they are just as difficult to open to. Opening to our goodness, opening to forgiveness, opening to letting go, opening to truthfulness. His Holiness the Dalai Lama Said until, until you understand the meaning of suffering for yourself, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about prejudice, and when I see that happening to others, <coughs> I can feel compassion for the perpetrator, and not just the victim's. That's a really important aspect of knowing these things in our own hearts. So when I was going through some really difficult times, uh, outwardly and inwardly, I came across this writing by the poet Mark Nepal and a writer. How many of you know of his writing? Very, very human, very touching base with humanity and the reality of our lives as human beings. He went through his own deep challenges, journeyed through health, really deep health stuff, and relationship stuff. And uh, his story and words gave me a lot of courage to... You know, when somebody writes something, you feel that you're seen <laughs> because their life is like that. and You realize it's not just about being perfect and looking good, but... It's about just really being human. So, in this one writing, he wrote, Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching, I'm just opening, no longer trying to make sense of this pain, but being a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub to a pearl. Mm-hmm. Do you get that? Mm-hmm. You know, like the dukkha, the suffering, it makes you stand up to life more. It makes you see, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to face this for at least a moment. Or this is hard, and I know I'm just going to wreath an agony right now, but I know at some point I'll be able to be courageous about it. And it does happen. You know, we do have those... Um, transformations, and we feel that that irritation became a shiny part of our hearts, that pearl of wisdom that we know how it is, that suffering can make us shine even greater. So allowing that, uh, what's difficult to bear, to bear, to bear with. Our, uh, one of our teachers, Seda Upandita, all these teachers had great effect on us, but I loved his his stern compassion that he was able to say, just stay with it, stay what is with what's difficult, pain in the body, pain in the heart, mind. When you would ask him how long to stay with it, and he would say, until it's unbearable, just straight faced, you know, until it's unbearable. Not, oh, go find some, you know. When he'd say that at the right time, of course, sometimes, you know, you'd have to rest or whatever there is to do. But, um, and then more, and then go beyond that envelope sometimes. So sometimes you reach a, a place in that pain where you say, this is as far as I can go. But sometimes you can go and eke further, And then you're able to see that it's really so ephemeral, what you were calling so hard to be with, that it's something that's unbearable can become bearable. Or you learn to tune into courage instead of weakness, instead of giving up. There are some things that if you stay with long enough, just a, a slither of a moment, a hair point, later you realize, wow, this was worth it. So from what I hear and see in these various communities I'm in and connected with, I feel and feel in my own heart, I know there's a growing sense of urgency within all of us, you know, as a group and individually here, To help and to do what we can from this deep place of strength, of gaining strength, of being able to face all those, uh, what's all the injustice in the world and what's going on at all levels. To be able to offer our gifts, however insignificant we consider them to be, wherever we can in our own communities, offering what we know about this practice. Um, to groups that we are qualified to do that in as leaders. Um, all this mindfulness training so important to offer to communities. Um, it spreads the word and allows more people to come in to the Dharma and know the various aspects of it uh, bit by bit. To touch the world, which is increasing in complexity and speed. To touch our own humanity with simplicity and slowing down. We learn to do that in a place like this. How important it is when I see us all, or you all, walking slowly and being able to just do the walking practice and do what you're doing. Whatever it is, hearing a moment of just hearing having a moment of just seeing, keeping that simplicity. It's so wonderful to to see that, to see that you're actually taking advantage of all the support that you're being given, that we've been given. So it's this urgency to touch the earth with that kind of kindness, that kind of softness. Sometimes, I don't know if some of you do this too, you know when we bring our attention to our bodies in the morning or when I'm a yogi and they say to do that bring your attention to your body just maybe feel one part of your body maybe your breath it 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 feels like um, I've been away from this a long time and I come back to feeling my foot hitting the ground when I'm walking and times when I'm in practice or just the simplicity of hearing leaves rustle, you know, to, sometimes I get busy, even as a Dharma teacher, there was so many things to, so many layers, and levels, and angles, and emails, that to just hear the leaves rustle, I could have tears of happiness, just to feel that, you know, it isn't tears of sadness to be away, but, from it, but, like, so grateful to just be able to have those moments and that's touching the earth with kindness and being part of the earth not just indigenous peoples but also for us to feel the simplicity of life that way to be able to go within and really discover ourselves in the way we are we don't get this Teaching this learning, this opportunity in many places on earth. This is very rare. So if you're not taking full advantage of this time, consider the rarity of our time here together and what we've been offered out of a lot of generosity. So we learn to ask ourselves our questions from this deep place. I mean, these are so simple and like no-brainers but we learn to ask them deeply what creates harmony and happiness on an individual level on a social level what habitual forces create an ecology you know when their inner world can interact with the outer world and create that deep ecology of peace, ease, harmony within and on a social level Do we have the urgency to develop that and be an agent for that in this world? So we begin to ask ourselves these questions if you're really grokking this opportunity that you have. Granted, with our practice, we may not radically change the world, the whole world, but in fact, transforming our own hearts and minds can be a possibility And we can affect people in the world just with our beingness, just with how we are in the world. We don't have to be a Dharma teacher or um, any great being. A great being is you in this world, doing what you can, you know, just being kind, smiling, (laughs) smiling. sending ripples of harmony out in the world just because you feel it in yourself, that harmony. So compassion doesn't make the atrocity of the world disappear, as His Holiness says, or see them as right. It just stops these atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, which has an undeniable, infinite outreach in our world and Mother Earth. So in one talk where I heard His Holiness speak about this compassion, he said something about the greatest disarmament when they were talking about disarming the atomic bombs during those times and years past where it was a a big conversation. He was saying that the real disarmament is the disarmament of greed, hatred, and delusion Mm -hmm. in our own hearts. That's the real disarmament. And that's where we can have a great effect in the world. So all of this enormous support for awareness, for compassion, to uh, accompany awareness, that metta that turns to compassion for oneself, for individual other individual beings, for groups of beings, Um, This is really important. We learn to open to all that life is. Not just part of life that is happiness producing or pleasant, pleasurable producing. Sometimes when we first come to practice we say I want to open. But we realize when we start practicing that maybe we only want to open to what's easy. But a good measure of life isn't easy. So this practice is really about the reality of opening to it all, to the everythingness of life, which includes all the joys, all the sorrows. It's asking us, I mean, life is asking us, can we really do that? Can we live our lives here on earth and do the best we can to open to as much as we can? So I'd like to close with this um, poem by Donna Markova, and the name of her poem is "I Will Not Die an Unlived Life." And um, you can remember that "I will not die an unlived life," and, and um, if you Google that, you'll find it. We we don't give out poems here; it's too much. So you can look it up. I will not die an unlived life, the name of the poem. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid and more accessible, to loosen my heart a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance to live so that which came to me as a seed goes to the next as a blossom, and that which came to me as a blossom goes on as fruit. I will not die an unlived life. So let's just sit with those understandings and let go of the words.